0: Primary school teaching and being an author are not usually two jobs you would associate with dyslexia, but our guest speaker is both a teacher, author, and a proud dyslexic. He has been in the classroom for over 30 years, so it isn't really surprising that all of his heroes are teachers. He's always been passionate about stories, even before he could read. He's passionate about children's literacy and in building an appetite within children for the written word and sharing stories. I really hope you enjoy our show today. Paul, welcome to coming on our show today.
1: Very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: So you um, are a teacher. You've been yeah. working in that area for thirty years, and recently written two books. I've seen through my research. So how did that both come about? Well, teaching, and then your writing.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, I sort of fell into teaching when I um I did a fine art degree at Newcastle University, and I sort of while I was doing that I sort of started thinking what am I actually going to do to earn a living and so teaching sort of made sense as a degree to go with it originally I thought I'd be an art teacher and then I remembered high school too much and so I thought I'd go into primary teaching and utterly loved it and ended up loving that far more than the art and sort of loved being around children and from that point sort of um have just been with kids and telling stories and everything else ever since and I sort of really found a passion for that. And so you
0: primary school or secondary school teacher?
1: So primary school, I've sort of um, I've taught every single grade except kindergarten. I think kindergarten teachers are a special kind of person that I'm not. But everything else I've taught in primary, I'm sort of teaching Year Six at the moment. And have for the last couple of years actually? Ah,
0: uh, Year Six. No, I don't think I'd want to teach them.
1: Yeah, it always takes you both kinds. I think I, I, kindergarten are those things I sort of can't get over, and then by about Year Seven they get a little bit too old, and I sort of go, No, that's a high school job.
0: Yeah. I um, did the first year of teaching at university before I went on to become a speech pathologist and I couldn't actually pass the um, literacy and numeracy part of it.
1: Yeah, and it's it's changed a lot now. Sort of when I went through teaching, it was very different and sort of that there's a lot more sort of of that component and expectations now. I've sort of very much gotten through all of my schooling, I guess, on I'm really good at listing and retaining. And so I sort of found that... When teachers told you something important, they would actually tell it to you as well as making you read it. And so I wouldn't always pick it up through the actual literacy, but I would always pick it up from actually retaining what they told me. That was always enough to sort of get through. And I sort of, I've predominantly found that I wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia until I was very late. And I really sort of got through schooling with every single report card saying that Paul can't spell and Paul knows work in spelling but has a great imagination. And I sort of, I was able to get through that because there was that, that little hang-up that said I had a great imagination. I didn't have that complete loathing for schooling. And I got through on just being able to sort of listen. And it wasn't really until much later that I sort of realised I always had trouble when I was reading out loud. And um, when teachers went round the room to have kids read, I would always ignore what all the other children were saying and sort of jump ahead to find where my bit was and sort of so I could practice reading it a couple of times yeah. just so I knew what was going to happen.
0: I remember doing that. I remember asking a teacher in secondary school if I could please not read aloud because I was really struggling. And he said, no, because you've made me aware of that, now I'm going to make you do it even more. Yeah. and It was it, terrible.
1: And it, it's that idea that, that teachers have where reading out loud is such a skill that adults don't have to do very often. and But it's so dominant in schooling, even from a young age, where they sort of have that. And just reading out loud blind like as an adult if I have to go to a presentation or do, do something I have the opportunity to be able to read it beforehand and break it down and put dot points down and everything else where just reading blind from a novel is such a bizarre skill to have and we expect it of children from about you know one or two on to HSC level and here's the book at your level just keep going or beyond your level and keep going and then do it in front of all your peers
0: yeah it's a it's not, it was a frightening thing for me and I felt like, yeah, I'd lost the con- understanding of the context of what we were trying to learn because I was too busy trying to <laughs> read ahead to see, was I going to trip over any word that I couldn't pronounce or,
1: um, yeah. And that was the thing, it removed the whole point of the literacy entirely, that, that the whole reason you were reading the story or listening to the, the text just was taken apart because you became so transfixed on what do I have to actually read and then, you know, you'd skip over those words that were difficult and hope that no one noticed and or you have to go back or you just slow right down so the teacher would jump in and give you the words ahead of you
0: yeah. And so
1: it's all those techniques that I guess dyslexics as a whole but I definitely developed through schooling to cope with those.
0: Interesting you say about your memory because I've found that that's um, been one of my strengths as well but it hasn't really helped me with literacy but more if I've had to listen to a lot of content in meetings or things like that in the workplace that I find that it's very helpful. I reading uh, what everyone said without needing much
1: note. I find it's one of those things often when I come across people similar to me who have sort of got through schooling without having that real because I always I always enjoyed stories, so I always enjoyed English. I, I never had that idea that it was something to hate because of I struggled so much with it. And I often find that when I hear people sort of my age, and I'm sort of forty-ish rather than, 30, so I'm sort of getting towards that older end of the spectrum, And it's that thing where we made our own coping mechanisms. We found a way to sort of get around it. And I'm very much an audible learner, so if I hear something, I'll retain it, and my memory is what I rely on for lots of things. And I found that I didn't even realise I was building those techniques as I was going through school. And it wasn't until I sort of became a teacher and sort of looked back at teaching techniques to sort of help children that I sort of realised, oh, that's what I did or that's what I found. And I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I had a child in my class who I knew was clearly dyslexic. Oh, and wow. I was trying I was trying to go through the test with him and realized that everything I was ticking off for him I had as well. And it was those sort of things. And then at sort of I was 25 or 6 and went through all the tests and then to go through it with this student and then got officially diagnosed and went through and, and all these techniques or sort of going, oh that works. Oh, I like that. And it was just really interesting process to me to go through then.
0: So how did you feel going through that process? Because some people um, if they've had a negative experience through education, I mean, clearly you, you were always reinforced the positive, positivities of having a great imagination. But for a lot of people, they don't. If they end up being assessed as an adult, they can end up um, feeling depressed or they can have other issues related to that. So how did you feel at 26 being diagnosed? Because I was 27 when I was diagnosed.
1: I, I thought it was a great relief because suddenly there was that thing of that makes more sense. And sort of, I, the internet was sort of taking off a lot more. I was sort of 18 or 19 before I sent an email. So sort of that, but suddenly there was communities of people who were like-minded and I had that option and being diagnosed with dyslexia meant that I had texts I could read on the subject. There was people I could talk to. There was groups that I sort of knew rather than just being this person who could just Never, yeah, you know, you know, People will say, "Pitch that word in your mind." Does it look right? And I can't picture words in my mind. I've never been able to picture a text in my mind. I like, picture the word television. I'm seeing an actual television. I don't see the actual word at all. And and it was interesting, sort of going through those techniques of different things. And suddenly you go, "Oh, okay, that makes sense." And you go through that, and you meet this person, you hear that story, and I found it having the diagnosis of dyslexia suddenly gave me a whole community of people I could talk to and, and hear stories from and actually share that idea of it wasn't just me and how I learnt, there was other people that learnt the same way or that learnt completely differently but had the same experiences.
0: So has it um, had an effect when you're trying to teach literacy so, like, for me, when I was going through my speech pathology training, we had to learn this um, spelling program, which I felt really helpful for me. But when I was trying to do teaching, I really struggled with how I'd be able to teach the concepts. And I've struggled as a speechy when I'm working with children with literacy issues that have need that support at the phonics level. So I've never worked at that area in, within that area because of that, because I know I struggle. So how do you do it as a teacher? Do you find that... You, it's an area that you struggle with or it's
1: okay? I think, I think the biggest thing, and I think probably the biggest paradigm shift we're teaching in sort of the last 20 years is I happily admit to my children and my students that there are things I can't do. And it becomes quite heartening to them when I say, I don't know how to spell that. Let's look it up and let's, let's I pull my phone out and let's like go to Google like this is how I'm gonna search for this word. And I still teach phonic programs in year six because I'm aware of that, but it's also though, I am very much aware that with 30 children in my class, there's 30 different ways they're going to learn something. And so we will often say, okay, this group, go and do it this way. And then, okay, what else can we do for this other group? And I think the providing the options and online tutorials and flipped teaching and online environments and things are so strong now and so vivid. And I think it's one of those things where having a teacher that can actually say, I don't know how to do that, and another student go, well, I can do that. And having that sharing correspondence across where teachers 20 years ago had to be that end point where the teacher has to know everything, has to know. And I happily admit that I'm not even close to that knowing everything now. And I don't see myself an expert except for the fact that I know different ways to look up things and research things and will go with the children. If I don't know how to do it, let's find someone that does or let's go and look at that. And that becomes a learning thing in itself.
0: So you openly disclose your dyslexic within your workplace. Yes, definitely. So how do um, how your, the parents, the children that you work with and your peers, so have within the workplace supported you? Have you felt supported and have you ever felt unsure about being
1: so open? Um, no. It, I find that the parents that have children with dyslexia love it. They, they finally see someone that will actually understand that. Parents that don't have never been negative towards it. I will... I always find that whenever I get a task, I do it straight away. I don't like to procrastinate things because it often takes an extra step of someone checking something before I'll sort of send it out. Mm-hmm. So every time I'm writing letters to parents or making notes, and those sort of things, I'll always go through somebody else because it's, it's just that professional standard of making sure that, and I will often sort of um, flip letters around, or I'll put the wrong homonym in as different words. I'll do those sort of things quite often. And so I'll always have somebody sort of check something before I send it out. But I guess one of the things with sort of social media and, and people generally spelling so badly happily in because they're just quick these days and with autocorrect actually benefiting, helping, I think that the expectation from parents isn't that I'm perfect either. And, and I quite happily um, disclose that very openly with both staff and, and parents. And I will have other staff. That can be, I've got this child that's like this. What can I do or what can I do? And I'm not a dyslexic expert at all, but I very much having gone through the experiences myself, can empathise or can say, oh, we can try this and do this and get excited about a different system or somebody will say, oh, I've found this app or I've done this or, and that sort of thing and I'll get excited about it and then share it with the different group that I've got.
0: That's fantastic because a lot of people might be fearful of disclosing, particularly if they're teaching language um, to children. So is yours purely just a reading are you purely dyslexic, or do you have co occurring difficulties such as dysgraphia or dyscalculia?
1: No, I, I just had dyslexia, and it, it manifests very much when I'm, I'm reading and sort of trying to. I really have trouble if I write, physically write, as in with a pen, mm-hmm. whereas I type a lot better and I rely on autocorrect and grammarly and all those sort of things as well. But you
0: do with report um, writing? Sorry. That, do you have any issues when you're doing report writing? Do you ever find that that's a stressful time for you? Because
1: uh, <laughs> again, it's one of those things where it's it's interesting as a teacher that the different strengths you rely on. So um, as a writer, I write very quickly, and so I can write out my reports in sort of you know not quite a day, but I'll sort of I'll, I'll sort of sit for seven or eight hours straight quite happily writing, and then. Um, The teachers that I work with, I've always had some really good support, so they they will edit them a lot, and then I'll go back and rewrite. And I find that the the strength I have through dyslexia, or I I never see myself as suffering dyslexia, but having dyslexia, because it's sort of I really feel that. Dyslexic could offer more creative and sort of that sort of thing. And so I find the actual writing process easier, even though the editing process is longer and I'll always have an extra person check. So with our reports in the school I work in, we always have a colleague check and then they sort of go to the head and they, they sort of check before they sort of go out. And I will always find somebody else in that process to sort of have a first round check, but I'll always make sure that I get them out quicker, I guess. And it's one of those things where being comfortable writing has enabled me to push through and be able to write quickly and sort of get that information down. Then I have someone check it. Then I go back and edit it myself and then I go back and have that, that extra step. And so the strength of me being quick and creative in the actual writing process allows me to have that extra step where I need to actually have that structural edit and those sort of things from there.
0: Sounds like an extremely supportive environment. It's fantastic. I wish I had yeah. that in my workplace. <laughs> uh,
1: it, it's one of those things though, where I've, I've never tried to hide it and I've always sort of, Other strengths that I have, I will trade back and forth with colleagues that I work with, and so um, it might be that I will help somebody else structure something else or technology wise, or do something else with them. And and it's I've always found people supportive if you're honest with them and sort of have that um, conversation back and forth. And I've always found that I'm always happy to help and support somebody else. And everybody has their strengths and their weaknesses that they have, and this is just one that I can put a label on. Yeah,
0: I wonder if it's because of the industry you're in. Because I know within the health sector, that has not, majority of time, that hasn't been my experience, unless I've had a manager whose background has been in education, they've been really fantastic. or my first uh, CEO that I worked for, she was a speechy, and so she was really understanding. Um, But the majority of time, because I've always been open since I was diagnosed because of what had happened in my graduate year being bullied because of my dyslexia I didn't know at the time. So after that I wanted to make sure I was always honest with my employers so they knew why I was having challenges. And for me it's my writing a lot. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't always been so positive. So it's really nice to hear such a positive story around how you're getting supported and that it really doesn't seem to be having an impact on your working career at all.
1: Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where teachers as a whole are prone to educate and to help and support. It's one of those sort of part that if you end up being a teacher, you often sort of have that background in which you're happy to educate and support. And So I think it's sort of, I've worked in a number of places and with a lot of different people and never had a negative experience from that side of it, from stuff at all. And, I mean, you'll often get sort of the, you know, a note will go out with something the wrong way around and you'll sort of get the, oh, it was Paul, don't worry about it. It's just that sort of. But I haven't had a backlash at all from that sort of side, which has been great.
0: Mm, that's so wonderful to hear. It's really nice because I get, speak to a lot of people and um, a lot of their stories, they've had some type of trauma or um, they haven't had the best work experience or they don't want to openly come out in the workplace at all, a lot of people, because of fear of being discriminated against. So it's really nice to hear the type of environment you're working in. It's really refreshing
1: it's a shame there's not more like it, I guess.
0: No, it is a shame, but that's why it's great to be able to do a podcast like this where people can listen and um, employers can learn. and how they, Yeah, how they can support their staff and it's really not a big deal at all. Um, so how did you move towards becoming an author? Oh,
1: well, I've always, and I, sort of, I sort of said I, I've always liked stories even before I could write. And it's one of those things where... I think that the the biggest reason why literacy and education wasn't a negative experience for me was because of the stories. And I think if I, I didn't have those stories to go on to, and I used to write pages and pages and have teachers just not be able to read them. I'd be the only one who could read them back because they were just so horrendous. And this isn't young, this is sort of getting older primary, and sort of into high school, I would still write these big, long things. and. I just came and I had a couple of amazing teachers, but I had a lot of teachers that would just sort of would go okay and, but wouldn't actually shoot them down. They would just like, oh, okay, look at the spelling and everything. And I somehow managed to get through all the corrections and all the red pen and everything else. And I still enjoyed the story, still enjoyed writing. And the biggest the my story, which is the story I've written on dyslexia, is an, a true story of my year 10 teacher that I had. And he had this thing where we had every month or something, it was probably only 10 or 11 of them throughout the year, he asked us to write a story and he promised he wouldn't mark it on grammar or structure or anything, he was just marking the story. And it was that completely, and prior to that I'd sort of started to write a lot more at home and sort of school I would always find, you know, smaller words to use that I knew how to spell rather than the words I actually wanted to use. And I, my, my thesaurus brain became pretty good at trying to swap words out to make tinier words. And this was the first time I was actually allowed, allowed to just write things. And then at the end of the year, I was sort of, for a while I was going to leave year 10 and sort of be a chef and I didn't know what I was going to do and I, so I was always going to lead um He said to me, you're actually a really good writer. And if you keep writing and you get good enough, you can pay someone to fix your spelling. And it was that sort of light bulb moment that I would sort of potentially in the world, there were these teacher figures that would actually correct my work and I could actually still write and actually produce a story that was this huge weight off my shoulder for actually being able to do something. And if I hadn't have had that you know, one sentence, one relationship with a teacher that actually let me write, I probably never would have kept writing. And I, I've done art and I've done sort of sculpture work and I sort of, I've, there's always been creative things. But when I sort of started working full time and I sort of stopped having time to sort of work in a studio and do creative things, I went back to writing. And it was that confidence that he'd given me 10 years earlier that I could be a writer and someone else was saying that, that gave me that confidence to keep going. And from about 18 or 19, I started sending out things to publishers just because I thought I could. I sort of won a competition really early on when I was sort of youth week competition that a label, oh, somebody else likes my work. I must be good at something I could find the right place. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of, it was 12 or 13 years before I actually had something published. And then it was, I was um, 35 when I had my first picture book published, 36, when I had my first picture book published. And it just went really well. And sort of um, the confidence I got from that, I was able to write this book. And when I first wrote my story, I spelled everything wrong and deliberately had everything mm-hmm. and spelled. And the publisher said, you've got to be kidding me. there's no way I can produce this. And so I, I came back and I spelt. The number of words wrong throughout it. And then she said, I can see that this would work, but marketing will never get it through. There's no way we can get this through marketing. And so we actually approached an illustrator before the marketing team, which is unheard of in publishing circles. And so the illustrator was on board, did illustrations to sort of show what it would look like before they even approached the marketing team to get it through the publisher because it was such a bizarre concept to actually have. And there's, there's probably 12 words or 15 words that are spelt phonetically in the book, and it's a different font, so you clearly know. It. But it seemed hypocritical to write a book about the idea that you could write a story without necessarily worrying about the spelling yeah. and then be so fanatical about the spelling in the book.
0: It's, um, I can't wait to buy it because my, one of my nephews is dyslexic so I think it will be a really inspirational story for him to be able to read. So he's a little bit, little bit older. He's in upper primary now. But um, it's great to be able to show him... Positive stories around people's lives and how their their journeys through dyslexia as well. It's interesting you say that because I know that on my social media I like to leave my spelling mistakes because it's authentic. Like you're being authentically you and showing people that it's okay to have grammar and spelling mistakes. And my mum in particular is like rings me and says, "Shay." you got all these words felt wrong. Quick, go back and fix them in your Facebook post. Like, oh, I'm like, Mom. She's like, no. So the only time I'm allowed to have mistakes is in my blogs. That's where I drew a line and said, no, this is why nice I'm no. sharing my stories and people get the content and they can either not read it because the grammar and spellings annoying them or they can and yeah. I appreciate that that's how I write.
1: <laughs> and I found it really interesting with my story in a sense that Everyone that I've had that's read it, I've not had a negative comment back at all. It's been really well received from those that have read it. I've had a number of children that have actually bought it for their schools and a number of sort of year six children that have sort of bought it and they've given it to their schools. as like their leaving present as for the, their school library. But there's been a number of sort of negative comments that I've sort of had, especially from US markets that haven't read the story at all but just gotten on the idea that it has these mistakes in it and suddenly getting very emotive at these arguments of how can we possibly let a child with dyslexia read these books, it's going to reinforce these mistakes. And it's one of those things where I find that when people take the time to actually look at the book, they're amazed by actually the story and get it. But that idea of everything has to be perfect to be published, it still seems set in a lot of minds.
0: Yeah, it's like everything we do has to be perfect, but we're not perfect and the world isn't perfect. And I think we have to learn to have acceptance of of everyone's individualism.
1: Yeah, and it's such a strange thing in in a sense that spellings is one of those things that people decide is a means to identify and go, well, you've done this wrong, where there's so many things that we're all doing wrong with every other field. It just seems an odd thing that that that's the because it's so identifiable, I guess. that that it's that people seem to you know social media is a good example where somebody will jump on and suddenly there's like there's different ways to spell there and there's all those big rants about you know you're sort of going okay we get it but what was the context that started it off
0: yeah i've had a manager and she get really frustrated with my spelling and in the end i said to her, can you just read the content and just tell me if you're happy with the content because we can get the rest edited I need to know what I'm writing is actually what you want first before we go back. But she just really struggled with getting over because she was a really good writer. Yeah. She was really picky about spelling and grammar and it just threw her all the time.
1: It's one of those things too, people that are really good at it, I'm happy for you to use that. Feel free to edit my work and just change the spelling as you go along. It's fine. Go exactly. for it. I'm, happy. I'm not offended at all.
0: Instead of putting a red pen around everything and saying, here you go, I can't cope until you fix all of these, yeah. it would have taken probably, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes because I have other people in my organisations so that I always find someone that's very kind that will help edit my work.
1: Um, but I always find too that people that are, you know, natural spellers, for lack of a better term, can see it straight away and change it straight away and it's not actually a burden on them. And so people that, are, people that read it and in it you can just change it.
0: Yeah, that's and right. It's You're so quick and easy.
1: Yeah, rather than sending it back and say, oh, you need to fix this before it goes. Just, you could have done it before you sent the email back.
0: Yeah. So um, you've written a second book now. Yeah. So
1: I have, sorry, sorry I, have, so I have a third book coming out at the start of April. So
0: oh, fantastic. Year.
1: Yeah.
0: And so are they all about um, having dyslexia or they're all different?
1: No, they're all different. But it's sort of, so the first book I had was sort of about dementia. So it was sort of the, the story of my grandmother and sort of a relationship between a grandmother and a grandchild. And sort of that's done really well. It's sort of, it's um, in half a dozen, well, a dozen countries now and sort of five languages and sort of going really well. And then that sort of gave my publisher a sort of a, I can have a bit more restraint. And so I therefore got the dyslexia story that I sort of got out at the August, uh, August last year. And then the next one is sort of – its I seem to keep fascinating being stuck around schools and teachers and things. And the next one is the idea of a a young girl starting school with a really vivid imagination and then teachers sort of trying to teach it out of her by, you know, rote learning letters and rote learning numbers and it ends up the imagination takes over the school and takes over the teachers and everything else. And it was sort of, again, that experience of – and I've been really lucky, but my daughter who sort of started school and I was worried about – I guess the experiences that I had in early schooling was a lot of rote learning and sort of trying to get everyone the same, sort of pigeonhole those things and those that were a little bit different on the outside was sort of left to their own devices a bit and all sort of ended up like everybody else. And I was concerned at that imagination being wiped out through schooling. And I thankfully didn't, but I sort of I wrote the story on that idea of the girl, the imagination impacting the school rather than the other way, the schooling impacting the child. How beautiful. Thank you.
0: My mum's a principal at a primary school, so I'll be excited to share your books with her, but also we'll be sharing them with um, our listeners and on our website as well. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, because we've touched a bit about the workplace, but you also joined our Facebook community, and um, that's a very small group at the moment. It's slowly growing. I think we get a couple of people a month or every few months. Um, and it'd be good to get your feedback and your thoughts around
1: why you joined it. I, th- I think the biggest thing that I think the internet can provide the world is it makes people that feel isolated and in small groups in their own community part of a bigger community. And I think Did This Lexi does this amazing job of just connecting people that have shared experiences and like experiences and make them not feel alone. And I think the biggest thing with any sort of difficulty that you have is when you're surrounded by a host of people that don't. And if you suddenly feel like you're the one person in the room or the one person in the organization or society, or whatever that has this condition or whatever it is, you suddenly just feel so isolated and anxiety builds up and depression, you've got all these sort of things that are linked to it. And if you can reach out and connect with somebody else, that is similar to you you suddenly don't have that feeling of alone and and i think the amazing thing with organizations like this is that the potential is anybody can touch in and share their story and make somebody else's story feel a connection with and they can have that relationship and build that community that's not necessarily physically around them but it's part of their life and part of them and so not feel isolated and feel okay i'm not unique and different in a bad way i'm unique and the skills that i've got i can actually add to this
0: yeah, it's been, um, it's been great seeing the different people join because we've had people from all around the world now. And um, it's been nice to hear the feedback and it'll be interesting to see how we can grow it over time because I think um, sometimes we've had people that have wanted to join and have said, don't worry about your spelling. There's we always make sure people know you can write however you want to write because I mean, it's not the best forum for people that can have reading and writing issues. Um, social media. I have really struggled until I launched the foundation. I wasn't really on social media at all um, because of that. So it's um, an interesting platform that I think maybe we'd like to do some face-to-face, like LinkedIn, a Zoom or Skype as well, where people can just come and talk rather than have to um, communicate by text. So we'll see how that goes. But are there any um, any? tips or suggestions you'd like to put out there for our listeners who might be training to be teachers or that are working within the education sector that might be fearful or um, concerned about disclosing or where they might go and get some help?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing, and I have just had positive experience in the education sector. And I mean, I went through university and the sheer amount of text that you had to read and get through, and I went through in a time where they weren't podcasting lectures. They weren't actually supplying those sort of things. And mm-hmm. it just would take me three times longer to get through the readings every week. And I would have to plan my entire week around doing those readings. And I think the biggest help now is there's so much support. There's, there's so many options for a lot of universities to sort of podcasting things so you actually can hear the lectures again and again and have that. But there's also, there's enough teachers I think that are around that have now experienced dyslexia through their students that they understand that it's going to happen in adults. And often I think that that fear of disclosure is the fact that you're going to be the only one at that workplace. But I think more and more I'm finding that it's not one at a workplace. There's two or three or at least elements of dyslexia or dyspraxia. There's sort of, there's parts of the, that come through that people will see them themselves. Oh, I do that too. That's a little bit of that and have that understanding. And I think through understanding, there is such an opportunity for growth in all of us. And I think that when you can be open about it it does put the spotlight on you you sort of you do feel like then you become a voice for dyslexia and if you don't have an answer you suddenly feel like well, oh, maybe I should know that
0: yeah. but
1: I think I'm I'm always open about the fact that I'm not an expert I don't call it suffering it's one of the conditions I have I'm sure I have more but that one has a label and it's one of those things where I have had parents in the past who hate the idea of their children having a. label of dyslexia or any other condition being labeled and i i personally see a label as an opportunity for me to find other people with the same condition or other people that have this that i can actually learn from and what techniques can i use to help my own learning or what techniques can i use that might help my life and i've never run away from that and i think that i know there's a lot of schools that still don't support children with dyslexia, don't support children with a lot of difficulties. And and there's still a lot of people that are actually struggling going through that. And I know there's a lot of parents that I know who are trying to be that change in the school as well. But I think that it's more open now than it was. There's more opportunities now than there were. And there's more apps and things that are actually able to convert text to voice and those sort of things. And then voice to text is another way. And, I have students that I have that are actually um, work on a sentence at a time. So they'll record a sentence into their notes or into their iPad and they'll put that down in the next sentence and the next sentence so they actually they know to stop and that causes a full stop rather than before they were trying to get whole things in. And hopefully over the next sort of five years or so, technology will increase again and then we'll have that thing where you know people will accept an audio book is having read the book you yeah. don't have that debate anymore over how you get text or how you get information, which still seems to be one of those current debates that will still go around education circles.
0: So, in the next five years, what do you hope to see for children within the education system? Because you're right. Um, It's improved a lot. You and I weren't diagnosed. I'm putting a presentation together for uni at the moment for my doctorate, and I've got my mum kept all my reports, and so we can track from grade 3 onwards my dyslexia, and it's clearly there in every report. Um, So, I mean, assessments are improving. Access to intervention is slow, but it's it's developing. There's still a lot of work to do. Um, But what do you hope to see in the next five years from an education perspective, but also is there anything for adults that you think um, you'd like to see happen as well?
1: I guess one of the big things I notice is that the difference between what's expected in schooling, what's expected in life. And it's one of those things where you expect a student to be able to write without autocorrect but you don't expect an adult to be able to do it. You, you sort of, you have those things where an adult with dyslexia will find ways to get around and ways to adapt and ways to sort of figure things out that aren't always open to students. And I think that sometimes you need to have those means open to students all the time. And, and I'll have students that will rely on spell check and autocorrect and those sort of things when they're doing their writing normally. And then suddenly they'll do something like NAPLAN and it's all blocked out, and then suddenly they, think, well, they can't spell it. And, and you know, we don't need to be able to spell anymore in society as much because our phones are in our pockets. We don't need to know what the, all these definitions. It's that sort of, I think, the access to those things that adults have in the classroom, for all circumstances, should be a lot more utilised and hopefully will be a lot more accepted.
0: Yeah. But thank you for talking about what you'd like to see happen over the next five years. It's really important. You're very welcome. And um, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a positive podcast and a really positive conversation with you. So I'm really excited to um, when we get to launch this and I'll be circulating it through all the schools that we're connected with, because I think it will be really valuable for teachers to hear your experience as a teacher and the teacher with dyslexia and um, how you've been really supported and how you've just had such a positive experience and also the wonderful books you've written. So I'm really excited that we'll be able to showcase those as well for you. So thank you for coming to the show.
1: Thank you. See you later.
0: If you'd like to find out more about Paul's books and more about Paul himself, head to the Dear Dyslexic website. Also, if you haven't already done so yet, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with all the work that we are doing at the Foundation. Head to deardyslexic.com. And don't forget, if there's anything you've heard today that you've found distressing, you can contact Beyond Blue, 1300 22 46 or Lifeline 13 11 14.